You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I hope these talks give you a little bit of inspiration to keep practicing and make your world a better place. Yoga is more than just a physical practice. It's a lifelong spiritual journey and we constantly need sustenance to help us stay on the path. So I hope you find that sustenance right here. And I look forward to seeing you on the mat. Okay, so everyone, you can type your questions into the chat. Uh, can you all still hear me okay? Yes? Yes? Great. Okay, wonderful. So before we take a look at all of the different questions, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the way that the yoga practice is actually seeking to work. So the way that the, the yoga practice and really the whole spiritual journey from the wisdom traditions of the East and really any wisdom tradition that's going to lead you into a path of liberation of the mind and the body will work at a unique intersection of understanding how consciousness really takes root in the expression of mind, body, thought, emotion, and experience. So it's going to get a little theoretical as I kind of share this with you. And then I want to really help you understand how both the yoga practice, meditation practice, and really any spiritual practice of liberation, regardless of which wisdom tradition it comes from, I want to share with you the dynamics of how that actually works to access the kind of wheel of consciousness. So let's go into, let, let me explain and try to explain that to you and dive into a little bit of the theoretical foundation of it. First of all, we have the notion that our reactions, our habituated patterns of behavior are often referred to in Sanskrit as the sankharas or the samskaras. Some of you have probably heard that word before. In the Pali language, which is a sister language to Sanskrit, the language of the Buddha, which some of you might not be familiar with it, we also have the word sankara, which is the same word. It's our reaction or our habit pattern of how we respond to various stimuli or various experiences. To a very large degree, this repetitive habit pattern of reactivity is what we know of as the world. It's what we think of as truth. It's what we think of as our personality. And it's to a large degree rooted in the past, the past of this lifetime, or depending on what you believe, the past of many lifetimes. So these samskaras have a strong inertia and a strong power and habit pattern. The philosophy of both the yoga path and the philosophy of the spiritual traditions of the East, including the teaching of the Buddha, are aimed at breaking the inertia of the sankharas or the samskaras. And when this inertia is broken, when this powerful habit pattern of the mind is broken, then we have a new access point to creating a new life, implanting new thoughts, and being new people. And Rather than this newness being kind of the birth of a new self, the way that the removal of the samskaras is presented is that once these, and sometimes the samskaras are described as defilements or impurities, or if you want to go into sort of the Judeo-Christian world, we could even consider them to be quote-unquote sins of the mind. When we move away from that, rather than birthing something new, what happens is that the true nature of mind gets revealed. So the truth of what's underneath gets revealed rather than something new that you have to go get some newness or it's not like a new car that you get or something like that. When the samskaras are removed, that true nature of mind, which is already present within you, gets revealed. So that's an important thing to understand. Now, we have to get more deeper into what the samskaras are actually about. So let's take a look at the theory of mind. And this is where things get a little bit theoretical. The theory of mind. In the Western world, we've been trained in schools to associate the brain with the mind. And we think mind. Then I was like, what is my brain doing? 
when we think about the, the study of mind, and we immediately think of, well, you have to go into neuroscience and then this brain center and that brain center. And I'm not saying that all of that is invalid. I believe in all of that and studying the brain. I think it, I'm very interested in all of that. However, there is a deeper and more holistic theory of mind presented by traditional yoga philosophy and, tradition, and the wisdom traditions of the East, including the teaching of the Buddha. If we have what is called the cognizing part of our minds, this is a pure field of awareness that just registers what is. And this pure field of awareness is called in the Pali language, the vijnana, in the Sanskrit language, the, the vijnana, very similar words. So these are essentially the same word, this cognizing part of the mind, a field of awareness, which is, has no judgment, has no past reactivity. It's just a field of awareness. Then we have what is called perception. And this is the sanya. The perception starts to tell a story about this is what's occurring. This is, you know, this is positive. This is negative. This is this, this identification of the story about what's happening, the perception. So there's cognition and perception, which in these wisdom traditions of the East are separated. Again, the cognizing part of the mind, the vijnana, has no story about whether it is, whether what is happening is good or bad. Then Sanya comes in and says, oh, now I perceive. These are words of praise that are coming in. These are words of abuse that are coming in. This is a sound I like that is coming in. This is a sound I do not like that is coming in. This is a, a smell that I find agreeable. This is a smell I do not find agreeable. And so this is the, 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 what is called the perception, the Sanya. The next aspect of the mind is what is called in the Pali language is Vedana. Vedana means sensations, sensations. Vedana is body sensations. And the way that these work together is that these three create a reality. And that rather than our samskaras reacting to a reality that is separate from us, our samskaras are actually reacting to this interaction that happens within the, the field of our own mind-matter creation. And so what happens is when we have a vijnana, an experience that registers in our field of perception, our field of cognition, our perception then qualifies. This is good. These are words of praise. Then Vedana, what happens? How do you feel when you get words of praise from the world? Oh, a beautiful, pleasurable sensation rolls down throughout the body. When you eat something that's very that you identify as tasting very, very good, there's a wonderful, happy sensation in the body. If, there are, if it's the opposite, if there are words that come in, a sound that comes in that registers as abuse, that registers as negativity, then the Vedana, the body sensations, you'll feel tension, you'll feel tightness, negativity, you'll feel some, some discomfort that will register in the body. So we have this chain of conditioned existence that we could call it, that these four parts of the mind-matter phenomenon are constantly interacting. In the field of vijnana, the field of, of the cognizing part of the mind, it begins as neutral, transformed by our sanya, our perception, resulting in various vedana, body sensations, which are pleasurable, neutral, or negative, then thereby resulting in sankharas, actions and reactions that we take, which are essentially habitual responses to what we have identified through the story of the mind as positive, negative, or neutral, more often positive or negative. Now, this begins to be our reality. This begins to be what we know is truth. This begins to be everything we know. And without the spiritual path, this has an inertia that simply calls us forward and repeats over and over again so that the future is an exact repetition of the past so that we keep continually repeating the past by reliving our past samskaras, even though it's a new circumstance because of our past experience, we repeat the same pattern over and over and over and over again. Now, the wisdom traditions of the East say that you can access a very important and crucial point in this chain of conditioned existence. And the insertion point is between Vedana, body sensations, and Sankaras. And this is a crucial insertion point to break this wheel of conditioned existence. Because when you can experience Vedana, body sensations, as body sensations, and learn not to react to them with your past Sankaras, 
then what happens is that sooner or later, the body sensations change. And then even if you just take a few moments of not reacting to that same experience with the same past pattern, a little bit of the inertia is broken. So let me give you an example. We're trained in our yoga practice. When pain or discomfort arises, all of our sankharas, our past reactions to pain, are that when pain arises, what do you do if you've never done yoga when some discomfort arises? What do you do? You run in the opposite direction. We make a face, depending on how we are. We make a, ooh, it hurts so much. Ooh, please no. Ooh, ow, 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 please no. You know, and then we stop immediately. We run in the opposite direction of pain. Unless you are, you know, some particularly special person, this is the, you know, natural resting state of the human condition. Unless you've been, I don't know, like some trained other athlete of some type, you know, we come to yoga and something hurts and we immediately think, oh, ow, 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 ow. And then we run in the opposite direction. This is the sankara. You know, this is exactly it. We train in yoga to remain neutral and open to the possibility of wisdom in the face of sankaras and then the face of painful sensations. So before, you know, somebody, before I get in trouble for sounding like I'm telling you to suffer through every pain that arises in the body, let me qualify that a little bit so we can understand what's going on. It is not the pain that is important. It is changing your reaction to the pain that is important. And the reason for this is that life, whether you like it or not, always will have some elements of suffering. There will always be some discomfort here. The, the climate will not be to your liking. The food will not be to your liking some days. You know, even your favorite coffee shop, you'll go in and get your favorite drink. And then, then one day there'll be a new barista who makes the drink in some way that's no longer pleasurable for you. And what was once a source of pleasure is now a source of pain. Or we change, you know, we somehow we love apples for five years. And then one day to the next, now we hate apples. The apple did nothing to us. Suddenly we hate the apple. So like this, we're constantly reacting, reacting, reacting. But what we're interested in at inter inserting consciousness and inserting space between Vedana, body sensation and Sankara is the reclamation of the true freedom of the human mind, the true freedom of the sort of human spirit. And, what, and the way that this works, and it's, very, it's kind of very hard to understand, that without training in the spiritual path, you will think that when you go into that coffee bar and you get that disagreeable drink, you will think that the reaction you're having is to the drink, which is something outside of yourself. You will think mistakenly that in the moment that you hear words of abuse coming from someone that you identify as a friend, a mentor, a lover, or someone who's important in your life, you will think that your sankara is happening against that person. But that is not true according to the spiritual path. All of our craving, all of our aversion is always related to some phenomena happening within this theory of mind. It's always happening within ourselves. What we are actually reacting to is the resultant impact of the vijnana, the sanya, and the vedana, our, our cognizing part of the mind, the story we tell about that experience, and the resultant body sensations that occur in that experience. All right? It's a little hard to understand. Like, it's a little theoretical. So let me explain again using the example. Here you are, we go we back to the coffee shop. I like coffee shop example, okay? So that we can all relate to, you know? Here we are, we walk into our favorite coffee shop, we order the same drink. Maybe it's a coffee drink, maybe it's a green tea drink, or maybe it's a lemonade drink. I don't care, I'm not, I'm not telling everybody we need to drink coffee. I personally don't even drink coffee, but I still enjoy the coffee shop experience, okay? You can be going into the coffee shop experience and ordering your drink, whatever your favorite drink is. And then, and then now for the past three years, you've gone in some few times each week and ordered this drink and brings you so much pleasure. You leave feeling, oh, carrying your little drink outside. Oh, so wonderful. And this has been become such a daily occurrence as part of your life that now you even have a reusable cup that you carry with you into this coffee shop. They know your name. It's such a pleasurable experience. Then one day, there is a new barista who doesn't know your name who doesn't know how to use your reusable mug, who makes the drink in a wrong way, throws out your reusable mug and gives you some unrecyclable, polluting styrofoam cup and the drink is incorrect. And then you walk out and you think and you feel so bad. Oh, now my cup is contributing to waste and I have this styrofoam thing. And, you know, in 
damaging the environment even more. And then you well, then you think maybe this drink will be okay. You take a sip. Oh, it tastes disgusting. And then suddenly you have a whole chain of reactivity. You're questioning, shall I call the manager? Shall I complain? Shall I get my money back? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? You, without the yoga practice, without the spiritual practice, you will think that you're reacting to that barista who made a mistake. The yoga practice, the spiritual traditions of these say, oh no, no, you are not reacting to that thing outside of yourself, whether it's a bad drink or a barista doesn't know what they're doing or some mistake that somebody else has made. When that experience has happened, you have registered sanya, some cognition has happened, some story has been told, and some resultant body sensations have occurred within you. And it is the body sensations more than anything else that you have the sankara towards. So yoga says in that moment, become clear. Oh, the source of my misery is not them. The source of my misery is within myself. And therefore, I can attain liberation from my misery because I am the source of my misery, not somebody else. Otherwise, you have to go around and train every barista. Oh, hi, you're new. I've been coming here for three years. This is how you make my drink. Please don't throw out my reusable mug. This is exactly how I should be treated. You have to walk around and control the world. This is exhaustion and impossible. You can't go around, oh, new barista, let me train you. Oh, new coffee shop, let me train you. This is, this is ridiculous. Then, you're, then you have to, should have a job to be the professional barista trainer for the coffee shops of the world. You know, and then this is, needs to be your job. This only way you could do that. So when we understand in yoga, we understand, oh, we cannot control the whole external world, number one. Number two, we recognize all of my craving and my aversion is not to something outside of myself, but it is to something inside of myself. It is how I am reacting. It is the story that I am telling. And more than just the conscious thoughts of what's happening moment by moment, it is my subconscious mind, which is constantly evaluating good, bad, good, bad, neutral, good, bad, neutral, and reacting to it, producing a vast wealth of body sensations. That part of the mind, which we consider to be unconscious or subconscious, never stops thinking. The vast majority of our thinking, feeling, and awareness happens in the field of the subconscious mind, to the extent that our contemporary neuroscientists say that the subconscious mind comprises 95% of our thinking. So this means that even though you don't think you're reacting to body sensations moment by moment, the subconscious mind deeply ingrained with old habit patterns of sankharas is constantly reacting, deepening the trenches of those old habituated thoughts. Now, the purpose of asana, especially asanas that produce pain, the purpose of asanas that produce discomfort, and the purpose of asanas that produce so much of pleasure, so some asanas feel so good that we become, you know, these, these intense sensations. The purpose of this within yoga is to train you in numerous ways. First of all, to train you in awareness of body sensation. I like to say that the purpose of yoga asana is to create a field of experience within the body so that you are feeling the body. And as you feel the body, this sensation, this feeling field, it brings you heightened sensitivity. And as the body becomes a field of awareness, then you have the second thing, which is extremely important. You have an access point into your subconscious mind. You can move beyond the conscious level into the level of pure sensation, the level of the subconscious mind. Such an important distinction. Number three, the reason why asanas have to bring up so much pleasure and so much pain is because you now train when pain arises, instead of reacting, 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 you train in localizing your awareness within. So think about this. If before you ever did yoga, 10 times out of 10, you reacted to an annoying situation with anger, anxiety, irritation, then you start doing yoga. Okay, you're not going to be the Buddha immediately. You're not going to walk around. Oh, now I'm, you know, Ganapati walking around, blessing everyone. Oh, no, no. You're doing a little bit of yoga. Then maybe some years go by. Now, nine times out of 10, which is one improvement, 10% better. Nine times out of 10, only nine times, nine times out of 10, you still react with negativity, anger, hatred, ill will. But one time out of 10, you decide instead of immediately reacting, let me focus on my breath. 
Let me focus on my Vedana, my body sensations. Let me see what all this is actually about for me. And you take a step back and then you locate, oh, I am generating this misery. I am generating this misery. Oh, I can access a stop, a stop point within this wheel of conditioned repetitive existence. Oh, wonderful. Let me now do the work of the spiritual path. So after maybe 10 years of practice, maybe two times out of 10, you respond with intelligence. After a lifetime of practice, maybe we get above the 50% mark. And then maybe after many lifetimes of practice, where we work hard at the spiritual path, then maybe we can respond 10 times out of 10 with the self-direction of the process and the path of liberation which is to constantly redirect ourselves into that access point within this field of conditioned existence to the place where we can actually change the habit pattern of the mind. I would also like to say that there is one other access point, which is very, very interesting. In our contemporary culture, there is a lot of discussion about change your thoughts, change your thinking. So if you've ever done positive affirmations or done um, any work in that regard, it's quite popular these days to think about questioning our thoughts. The access point that works with thinking is the access point that works with the sanya. So we're tr- so in this framework, they're, we're, they're trying to insert another break between perception and sanya. Because sanya is not true. Perception is not true. Perception is simply a story that we're telling about reality. So for those of you who might be familiar with, the, say, the work of Byron Katie, she's a wonderful spiritual teacher who basically teaches everyone to question their thoughts. Now, when you question your thoughts, you're questioning your sanya. So this means that you hear words. So again, we have the vijnana, words, some sound has arrived. Then the Sanya says these are words of abuse. The work of Byron Katie and the work of many of our contemporary self-help teachers essentially says, question that thought. Is that actually true that that's a word of abuse? And who are you when you think that type of thought? How do you act? How do you feel when you think that thought? Can you change that thought? And if you can change that thought, you'll change the result in Vedana and you'll change the result in Sankaras. So this is a wonderful access point. Now, yoga and the spiritual traditions of the East also work in that reverse order. However, that access points of the body is this creates this deep intersection for you to move a, a whole level of deeper consciousness into that, that, that theory of mind. And then you can work backwards. After there's space between Vedana and Sankara, then we end always with the spiritual traditions of yoga and meditation with what's called metta practice. And metta practice is when you try to think new thoughts. And so yoga says, hey, you can't start thinking new thoughts until you get access to the subconscious mind. Because if you're only going to be working with the conscious thoughts, sure, the conscious mind, you can be aware, oh, I'm irritated on this level. And this is up here. And it's only 5% of your thinking. If you only change a small percentage of the 5% of your conscious thoughts, you'll have 95% of your thoughts, which are still rooted in past sankharas, which are happening in the field of the body. So unless you access the subconscious mind, no matter how much work you do in positive affirmations, your brain will be repeating, I am happy, I am worthy of love, I'm successful, I'm a multimillionaire, and then still you're broke. So what's that, you know, what's the deal? And we're like, why doesn't this work? Well, because that access point of the thinking mind, unless you go in and reprogram the subconscious mind, which is actually the body, will only ever give you access to a very, very small percentage of your reaction patterns. So it's, I think it's important to work in both ways. I really believe in the, the intelligence of the spiritual path and the traditions of the East that ask you to go in through this, this um, access point of body sensations to access the subconscious mind, change your reaction pattern within the field that you are. And then once that work has been firmly established, then only you can move in and start to plant the seeds of new thoughts. Metta practice is the original positive affirmation. You know, now we have made this in contemporary words. You may read this traditional metta practice and think, oh, I'm not really connecting with what's uh, what's being said. But uh, the metta practice, planting the seeds of loving kindness, is the original positive affirmations. Whether you look in the mirror and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, self, or you say, may, you know, may I be filled with love. It's really, there's the same intention. And what we do in the spiritual path is we try to create the fertile ground to receive those new thoughts by lessening the inertia of our past sankharas. This is a long, long path. 
So a student asked me recently, why does it need to take so long before I experience real peace and real happiness in my life? Well, you know, the answer to that is because we've been working our sankharas in the opposite direction, the real peace and real happiness for so long. Whether you believe in this in multiple lifetimes or not, doesn't matter. However old you are now, we've been working enough anger, hatred, misery, not only ourselves, but in the whole patterning of the world in this lifetime alone to have enough to deal with for the rest of our lives. So this is what I wanted to talk about from today. Now I'll take a look at the questions in the chat. So Catherine asks, can you go further into how we can work with rewriting the subconscious mind through working in body and with metta practice in order to strengthen any type of affirmation work? Yes. Okay. Very, very good question. How can we go deeper in rewriting the subconscious patterns of the mind? So this is a very interesting thing to think about from this perspective. Number one, If you do not know what patterns are there, how can you rewrite anything? So the first big step in getting deeper in your understanding of how to liberate the mind is to get intimate with what suffering and what negative patterns are there. If you walk around in a false bubble of positivity, oh, I love everyone. I send love and light to the world. I am a love and light being. I live only on love, 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 love for everyone. And deep down in the subconscious mind, hatred, negativity, darkness, ill will, animosity, self-hatred, irritation, you find, oh, you don't know that about yourself because you have not contacted the depth of your subconscious mind. So the way you have to do as much introspective spiritual practice as possible with bravery, authenticity, and clear sight so that you can look within yourself bravely and say, oh. I have a pattern of anger within me. My anger is about this. I have a pattern of anxiety within me. My anxiety is like this. Not to immediately try to make it run away, not to immediately eradicate it, but to become intimate with it. So the first step is knowing what patterns you have. And this is why sometimes your yoga practice has been designed specifically to irritate you, to push your buttons, to reveal that which is sleeping within you. You know, you have these images in our popular culture. Oh, yoga, everybody happy with their legs behind the head on the beach. Ah, wonderful. So, wonderful. Yes, this is possible. And yes, we have moments like this. But the reality is you get on your mat, you try to put your leg behind your head and your leg doesn't go. And then you're mad at your hip and then you're mad at the yoga practice and irritated and suddenly anxious. Have I damaged my knee trying to put my leg behind my head? Oh my goodness. And that is all within you. So to become intimate with that, that is the first step to understanding how to access the subconscious mind. Then the second step is to understand the the impermanent nature of everything that we feel and the impermanent, untrue nature of our thoughts. So if we understand that everything we experience is impermanent, some days we feel good, some days we feel bad, some days we're happy, some days we're sad, this takes the edge off those dark emotions so that anger is not forever. Anger is not like a death sentence. It's not like, now you are angry person forever. Now you're brandished with the big A on your forehead and forevermore you'll be angry person. It's not like that. You understand what oh, anger is present. Oh, wonderful. Now this is anger. Let me experience it. This is my anger. Let me sit with it. Sooner or later, it's going to go away. Similarly, sometimes you may experience joy, happiness, bliss, also in your yoga practice and in your life. Big mistake that spiritual practitioners make is now sometimes they think that one yoga practice where everything was a flow, I'm sure all of you have had at least one yoga practice where everything was a flow, or you have one day in your life where everything was a flow. Ah, wonderful. Every green light. Oh, fantastic. You have only words of praise. Somebody speaks to you. Oh, your hair is looking so nice today. Oh, so wonderful. Such a beautiful outfit you're wearing. And then somebody, they give you a bonus for no reason at all. You have opened your bank account. Look, I have a bonus from my boss. What a wonderful day today is. And then you get attached to that. Oh, so wonderful. That day, that practice, when everything flowed, that day I got the bonus. Oh, and this high, this high. And you you think that now that every day should be like that. Every practice should be like, oh no, we're trying to practice being aware of the impermanent nature 
of everything that we experience, whether positive, negative, or neutral. And in doing so, that helps you break our attachment to the positive and our aversion from the negative. Again, not the things which occur outside, but how, how that impacts our weight and our body sensations. So once we've understand this basic, these basic things within ourselves, then only we have truly to the depth to which we have accessed the subconscious mind to that depth. We are receptive to the seeds of meta. I want you to think about your mind as a vast field and think of the field, just a field. You can visualize a field right now. Now visualize that field totally overgrown with plants that bear bitter fruits, plants that bear painful, bitter fruits, maybe a lot of um, spiky bits on the fruits. And then even if you get through the spiky bits, the fruit, it tastes so bitter, has no nutrients. So then you can feel, oh, this is, these are the sankharas, the past patterns, which lead to suffering. And these have implanted themselves in the field of the mind, in the field of the mind. Now in your yoga practice, one by one, you, you have to go up to each tree. Oh, here's this tree. Here are the roots of this tree. Here are the fruits of this tree. Now, here I will eradicate that tree. I will no longer give that nourishment. Only with nourishment will that tree grow. How do you give that tree nourishment? Every time you experience the Vedana that is associated with that tree and you react to it, you water that tree. Not only do you water that tree, you give it like fertilizer. You put miracle Grow. Everybody know what miracle Grow is? It's some blue stuff that you can put on the plants and then they go, they grow like crazy things. So then if you, you put some, I don't think it's so natural. I'm not advertising miracle Grow. Just I remember my dad used to use miracle Grow on plants. So I think there's a more natural one out there. Just let that be said. So some fertilizer has been put on this tree. Every time you react, every and how long you react, that's how long you put fertilizer on this tree that is suffering. Now, what do you have to do to eradicate that tree? Our minds, particularly Western mind, oh, I have to go on search and destroy mission. Let me get a saw and start sawing away at this. No, then you make a war with that tree. The tree becomes stronger, becomes stubborn. And so no, now I'll never go. So what do you have to do? Stop watering that tree. Oh, here's the fruit. There it is. I'm not watering it anymore. Sooner or later, not sooner, more like later, if it's a deep tree, it will wither and die away. Then you walk. Now, now that that tree has withered and died away, there's a little bit more space in your fields. In that new space, that old Sankara tree leading to the fruits of suffering now has stopped receiving nourishment. Now it dies, withers away. That very tree has fallen to the ground and becomes the soil, like in any cycle of regeneration. Now there is an empty space with lots of soil. Now you choose what type of tree will I plant here? And that is metta. Now I have eradicated some past pattern. Now I have an open field, only with the open field. Now I can plant the seed. If you try to plant the seeds of love and kindness next to the tree that's so powerful and strong and has been growing the fruits of misery, it will get squashed out and there's no space for it. So you have to make space by stop watering, stopping to water and nurture all those trees of past previous sankharas that lead to suffering. It's a long, steady work. And this is why patience, persistence, why we have to practice every day. Why we can't just practice once in a while and expect it to work. You have to practice every day. It's hard for the body to practice every day. It's hard for the body to make consistency. But it's so important because we understand we're not working for a physical goal. We're working for spiritual goal. Okay, let me take a look at our chat a little bit. So Melissa asks, so before doing metta in a deeper way, we should observe our negativity, such as anger and hatred, ill will, all that sort of stuff, uh, to get to know who we really are. And after we analyze the subconscious mind, yeah. So essentially, what I'm, yes, we, we have to do the spiritual work first. If you start directly with metta, then we haven't cleared out the the field. Every time you practice, you've cleared little of the field. So this is why you start your practice. It's about you. I'm here. I'm experiencing. I'm breathing. I'm trying to feel this bone, that bone, whether it's yoga or meditation or some combination, even pranayama, some spiritual practice. At the end of every spiritual practice, metta, at the end of every spiritual practice, even if you only do five minutes of yoga, little bit of metta at the end, little bit of generating the, the seeds of loving kindness within yourself at the end of every practice. Okay. So let's see. I see many questions here. I'm going to scroll back up. So Kathleen asks, do you have any suggestions for feeling isolated and alone 
trying to maintain a daily practice. So first of all, it's difficult to maintain a daily practice, period. There's just, it's a difficult thing. It's not easy to maintain a daily practice. There is so much patterning to not practice, to just avoid things which are difficult. The yoga practice brings up stuff. So you need to cultivate a certain amount of determination on yourself, within yourself. You need to cultivate that. And that's, that's essentially generating a, 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 a positive quality that will assist you. Just the fact that you get on the mat. Number one, it's difficult. So acknowledge that it's difficult. And then number two, when we feel isolated, Kathleen, like we're doing now, come together in online classes, in in in-person classes as much as possible so that you have a sense of community. And when you have a sense of community, this will really help you. A sense of community can be a class like this, a class in person. It can also be a yoga friend that you check in with and you just have, you know, a kind of a sense of accountability that, that really, really helps keep consistency of daily practice. Now, another thing that I think is extremely useful about keeping a sense of daily practice is to understand that as little as five minutes a day counts as practice. I know so many students who think, well, if I'm not going to do the full one hour, two hour experience, then I'm not going to do it at all. Five minutes a day is the minimum amount of spiritual practice that can make a difference in the quality of your life. So I think that's super important is to set the bar as something very, very attainable. Five minutes a day, I'm going to get on my mat. And you can do that, right? So the the last thing to understand is that routines are very, very helpful with maintaining consistency. So if you practice at all different times throughout the day, it gets very difficult to carve out that time. But as much consistency with time as you can do, that will help you. So this class, we try to keep uh, the same time every week, and that will help you uh, create consistency, regardless if there's a different teacher or something. It's your practice around the same time. Every week, you keep consistent on it. And that's extremely, just very, very important about keeping that consistency close to the same time every day. And again, that routine, as the behavior is routinized, then your body starts pulling you into the behavior. Whereas our routines are rooted outside of our spiritual practice. So they're pulling us outside of where we want to go along the path. So I would create as much of a routine around it as possible. Get a sangha. So like I said, come to a class like we're doing now, these live classes, come to them as much as possible. And then third, also just acknowledge and recognize that it is hard. It is difficult to be consistent and then set yourself a bar of five minutes a day If we're talking about yoga practice, that's six days a week. If we're talking about meditation, that's every single day. The mind gets no break because the mind has no break. It is always working. So you do you, if you're going to do a sitting practice, that is an every day for the rest of your life, five minutes a day, try and commitment. And that sounds like a lot, but five minutes a day, you spend uh, so quickly on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, looking at cat videos. We can delete one cat video and have a daily meditation practice for the rest of our lives, which is kind of astounding. Or some people are addicted to news. You know, you can spend, delete five articles from the New York Times, not even five articles, one article. You delete one article from the New York Times and then you have a daily five minute meditation practice. So instead of meditating on the problems of the world, as you're reading the news, you can take those five minutes and retrain the habit pattern of the mind to actually do the inner work. I hope that was helpful. So, um, let's see, question. I feel this is a practical question that Adinda is asking. Uh, question. I have compression between my foot and my quadriceps in Maritas and Adi, and it really hurts. What can I do? So if you think about the pragmatic, uh, practical applications of the practice, you want to ask yourself if the compression that you feel is going to lead to injury or if the compression that you feel is just something somewhat irritating that you can live with. So this is where we start to cultivate wisdom and change our responses to pain. Usually what we do with pain, I have a pain, how can I remove it? Some pains will not lead to injury. Some pains are just irritating and we need to accept them. Some pains will lead to injury. So we need to ask ourselves, is this a pain that will lead to injury? So if your entire foot is supported by your quadriceps, then this will probably indicate that it's not going to lead to injury. But if you look down and you see that your ankle is hanging off of your thigh and the ankle is sickling when we're doing these half lotus positions, this is going to indicate that your ankle may be at risk of injury. 
So if you we want to take a look at that physically within yourself and make sure that the ankle is in a good supportive place, that the ankle is not sickling. And then if there's still a sense of the foot being squeezed, then that is something we have to work with in that posture. When the foot is squeezed, you, you'll end up feeling that the heel is pressing on the organs in the twisting postures. And when the heel is pressing on the organs in the twisting postures, that foot is doing what it's supposed to do because your foot is supposed to press on the organs, creating a feeling of discomfort within your abdomen, but doing this magical thing that you hear a lot in yoga, which is cleansing the inner organs. And so how do the organs get cleansed? Well, the heel pushes on them and gives yourself a kind of internal massage of the organs. And then when the heel is removed, then the organs you know, do their thing and you become a little bit healthier. So go into any sensation you feel, sit with it and observe. There is a sensation in my foot, which I'm worried about. There is some pain. Is this a pain that will lead to injury? Now you have the wisdom. You can analyze. If my foot is entirely supported, then it seems that the foot is in good position. Foot is in bad position. Hmm. I either need to open my hip. I need to adjust. I need to modify the posture. If there's no risk of injury, how can I accept this pain? So you have some tools you can take a look at the next time you practice. So Emma has written that she's read my book called Sacred Fire many times. Thanks, Emma. And she says, uh, how do you feel you have developed since you wrote the book? Oh my goodness. That's a big question, Emma. Gosh. Well, <clears throat> there have been many lessons I feel that have come day by day, moment by moment. I feel that the spiritual path is like a constant evolution. I think that there were many, many lessons that I gained from those, that initial deep chunk of time spent going into the, the methodology of the Ashtanga yoga path and that I have continued the practice. It's a, so hard to put the finger on, you know, what developments have taken place. I can share with you that, um, you know, uh, definitely one of the lessons that has come up uh, recently has been this um, unique that, that unique intersection that I was talking about at the beginning of practice, um, how many sankharas are there within myself that I'm just starting to get a handle on what the actual root of them really is. So that thinking that, oh, I need this to change in order to be happy. I need this person to speak to me like this in order to be happy. I need these things in order to be happy to really realize that the resultant reactions are not anywhere outside of outside of myself, really truly within myself. And then to understand at a very deep level what those Vedanas are, what those body sensations are, just continue to do that work over and over again. Maybe I'll have to write another book because it's a little bit too much to, you know, think about just like that. So let's see. We have some practical questions. So let's take a look at some of these practical questions about Padmasana. Zenya is asking... I have a question about Padmasana. Is it okay in the closing Padmasanas to put the left leg on the right? I cannot hold Padmasana for so long with the right foot. You had an ankle sprain last spring. So first of all, whenever we're working with any yoga asanas, it's your body, it's your practice. You have to find the way to work the asana appropriately for your own body. If your body is, has an old injury or something like this, you need to figure out a way that you can best work according to what is appropriate for yourself. If you end up trying to stick to some dogma that would damage your body, then this is not useful in the yoga practice. So let's talk about Padmasana position. Traditionally, Padmasana is with the right leg first because you do right foot and the left foot and then energetically, it's said to bring energy up the spine. You do left leg first and the right leg first and it's said to bring energy down the spine. So here is what I recommend in the closing poses, that you do half lotus position. You have three closing poses that involve Padmasana position. Here's what I recommend. You cannot take the right leg lotus position for the entire time. Not a problem. You have 10 breaths when you fold forward. Then in that fold forward, since you're, since you're only, I'm going to recommend that you do half lotus. And if you would do right leg and then the left leg, your left leg would be on top when you fold forward. So for the fold forward, I recommend you do left leg half lotus only. Then... When you come up for Padmasana position, I recommend you switch your half lotus and do right leg half lotus. And then for Utplutihi, 
When you lift up everybody's favorite posture, I recommend you do the right leg first for Utputihi. But if Lotus doesn't, doesn't feel good for your ankle, even in Utputihi, you can't do even for the 10 breaths there, then you release and you do no Lotus Utputihi. You just cross your feet and lift up for Utputihi. Okay? Does that make sense? Half Lotus, half Lotus. If you got the full Lotus, save it for Utputihi. If it's not accessible, your ankle is bothering you, take no Lotus Utputihi and just lift up. Okay, good. So let's see if there are any other questions that have gone into the chat. Okay, so Laura says, why is it said to practice only Ashtanga? If I have a consistent daily practice, could it also be some vinyasa flow or hatha or something else? Is it bad to practice Ashtanga two, three, four times a week? Well, Laura, what am I going to say? You know, I'm going to report you to the Ashtanga police and then they're going to take you to the Ashtanga jail and they're going to make you do extra chaturangas and extra jump backs. Oh, look, here's Laura. She likes to do vinyasa flow and hatha yoga. So we're going to put her in a jail cell and make her do extra chaturangas. No, 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 Laura, it's not like that. So here's the thing that's important and only you can answer this. Um, it, what is it that is difficult that is making it hard for you to practice Ashtanga every day? Is it the discipline? Is it that your body actually needs rest? Is it that there's a really, really good Hatha yoga teacher that you want to spend time with? So if you think about it, I feel like the minimum amount of time that Ashtanga yoga can be like useful in the, bo in the body three times a week. If you do less than three times a week, Ashtanga yoga is just this uphill battle that you never really feel like you get anywhere. So I would say minimum three times a week. And then if you need to intersperse some other inspiration, you need to do a yin practice because that's better for your body. You need to do a hatha practice. It's better for your body. A vinyasa practice feels better for your body. That's okay. But I think minimum for Ashtanga is three times a week. If you're able to maintain three times a week and you need to intersperse some other things in, I think that's acceptable. It's totally fine. You're keeping a consistent daily yoga practice. That being said, I would also like to propose to you this question. What is it that you're getting in the vinyasa flow practice, in the hatha yoga practice, or the yin yoga practice? And can you get that in your ashtanga practice? Can you find a way to practice the ashtanga practice in such a way so that you integrate some of the things that you think you're missing? So if there's more softness in those other practices, can you integrate that into your, you know, into your ashtanga practice? If there's more spontaneity, if there are more, you know, if there's more backbending, for example, how can you integrate that into your Ashtanga practice? Just a question. All right. Okay. So, um, Melody asks, how long did it take you to learn how to lift up or jump back? Does it take lifetimes sometimes, or does a pose come and go away? So I think it's sort of yes to both of those. Sometimes it takes lifetimes to learn a posture. And jumping back and jumping through is really hard. It could totally be a next lifetime experience, you know? And, and at the same time, you could jump back and jump through for a little while, and then it could go away. Maybe you get an injury, it goes away. Or you just get, like, your body gets tired and it's not appropriate for a while. Just because you do a pose for a period of time doesn't mean it's going to be yours for the rest of your life. Again, everything is changing, impermanent. So jumping back and jumping through and lifting up, uh, the, the purpose of this within the yoga practice is that sometimes the asanas are very, very difficult. So if you just go one side to the next, one side to the next, your body doesn't necessarily get a chance to release. So a question to ask yourself is not necessarily how long before I lift up, how long before I jump back. Question is, how can I integrate what the movement of jumping back and jumping through is about for me specifically with my body? And this, I think, is a really intelligent way to kind of do the work of the practice without, you know, setting some high unattainable goal. I mean, I used to, when I first started practicing, my feet touched the ground. I felt like I cheated when I jumped back and jumped through. I'm like, yeah, now I'm much more softer. I'm like, okay, you know, today it's four in the morning and I'm going to go a little softer, you know, and today it's a little, you know, I feel really powerful. Okay, I'm going to work hard try to accept the impermanence and, and work with what's available for, for each day. So, okay, Jalili asks, should I ask my husband to assist me in Marichasana C and D, or should I wait for my body to be able to do it myself? My husband doesn't know anything about yoga. Well, this depends on 
many different factors. Uh, first of all, um, you and your husband would probably need to take a little bit of like a, a moment to go over what is needed since he doesn't do yoga and he's not a yoga teacher, but you have an intimacy and a trust between you. So if you're, so the question is sort of, if you feel confident that your husband can be trained, if you have a trainable husband, then I think it's potentially possible. And if the husband is amenable to being trained and is going to be available every time you do Marichasana C and D, sure, it can't hurt to have a little assist. But I think it's also good to work on your own. So even if you get, even if you're with a teacher that was assisting you, even me as a teacher, I try not to help the student every day. Because then what ends up happening is then the student thinks, now is the time that my teacher will help me. I'm like, no, no, I want you to do your practice and some days I may help you and some days I may want you to work on your own. So even if you train your husband or your friend or your wife or your partner to help you, I still think you should have some days where you just try on your own. Maybe get the help like once a week, maybe twice a week maximum so that the majority is self-practice, okay? So I see many ladies are asking a question about the, uh, the ladies' holiday, all right? So let's find those ladies' holiday questions. Okay. So I think there are two of them. So Alicia asks, I'm having a hard time maintaining my daily practice after it's been interrupted with my monthly cycle. How can you please share your approach for dealing with it? How many days do you pause? And Kylie asks, ladies holiday, question mark. I hear answers from men, but I'd like a woman's perspective. Okay. And as you can see in this class, there are many ladies, right? Lots of women, you know? Uh, and there are many, you know, biologically women have the menstrual cycle of what we call the childbearing age, you know, and then what's happening during that time is there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the inner female parts, you know, the uterus and the ovaries are going through a process, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, I can't think we're talking about that, but, but it's useful because why are we talking about that? Well, in the yoga practice, we're advised to take ladies who are going through their menstrual cycle are advised to take what is called ladies holiday. And what this means is that during the time of menstruation, particularly when it's at its peak, and you know what I mean when it's at its peak, we don't need to get into graphic detail about that, that during the time when the menstrual cycle is at its peak, that the deep work that is required in yoga in the inner body is not only impossible, but potentially harmful. So in other words, Uriana Bandha from the navel down to the pubic bone involves sucking deeply in the muscles of the low belly. And if we suck in the muscles of the low belly, we're going to be squeezing the uterus and squeezing the ovaries and potentially disrupting what's occurring naturally during that time. Because the bandhas will not be available to you during that peak moment of menstrual cycle, it's advised not to do Ashtanga yoga. Because if you do Ashtanga yoga, whether you're on your cycle or whether you're not, if you do Ashtanga yoga without bandhas, this can decrease the support available for your back. So if you do Ashtanga yoga with no bandhas, you can end up with back pain. Now that's just a pure reality of the, just the function of the practice. It's like driving without a seatbelt is hazardous for your health. You know, it's not like now Ashtanga is bad. It's like, if you don't put this protective mechanism on, then you're putting yourself at risk. Okay. Then second thing that comes up, and this is, this is kind of interesting. Okay. If you go in and now you're, I know we've already talked about if you don't have the bandhas, this can potentially uh, put various body parts, particularly your back muscles and the joints of the spine at risk of injury. Then number two, because you could potentially be going in and disrupting the cycle, this can disturb the hormonal balance of the body. And if you end up maintaining you know, practice and don't take any days off during that lady's holiday, then you can actually end up with amenorrhea when the menstrual cycle may stop for a period of time and you may disrupt the hormonal balance of the body. Once, that's, once that uh, hormonal balance of the body is um, disturbed, it's very hard to get it back. So I, I really recommend for ladies practicing Ashtanga yoga to really respect the, the ladies' holiday and take at least the days which are sort of the peak experiences of the menstrual cycle off. So it depends, lady, all ladies different. If you have very light cycle and you only have one day where you feel, oh, I feel something happening, then you take one day off. If you have two days where you feel, oh, that many things are happening, I feel, you know, if, if you need to take a, like a pain pill to deal with, you know, cramps or discomfort in the body, you have no business doing your Ashtanga yoga practice that day. And I think that's, I think that goes without saying that you are, if you're taking a, a, some sort of pain alleviating medicine, there's enough going on in the body, just give it rest. So if you have a very long cycle and many days where you feel discomfort, you can take three, four more days off. 
So how can you then maintain a consistent practice if you're looking at once a month taking between one and three days off? Well, during those days, I recommend to not treat yourself like you're an invalid. You know, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not incapacitated. You still have to go to work. You can't call in sick. Oh, I'm so sorry. My boss, I can't work today. Why I'm on my cycle. No, then no women would ever get hired for any jobs anymore. So this is not, you still have to go around and live and exist, but you're not going to jump back and do backbend and right just in the seat. Okay, great. This is a great time to think about. I can practice yin yoga. What a wonderful, I can get on my mat instead of Ashtanga yoga for two hours. I can do one hour meditation, one hour yin yoga. Oh, what a wonderful space to be in. How wonderful. Then you still maintain continuity of practice. At the same time, you're still on the mat. You're just not doing the things that are potentially damaging or disrupting for the female body. Instead, you're still doing spiritual work. I think it's very important. Or you don't like any of that, fine, go for a walk. Just somehow keep some activity. I think activity in that moment is nice. Oh, I'm gonna go for a walk. Okay, this is also very, very useful in that time. Okay, I hope that was an acceptable answer for, for everyone. Ah, Melody is asking, do you have any hour-long or 30-minute meditation for those ladies' holidays? It's a good question. I think the longest meditation that I have that I have uh, online is maybe around 30 minutes. Most people are not asking for that, but now that you have asked for that, maybe I will create some longer meditations. I think that's is, it can be very, very useful. Unfortunately, when we do longer meditations, you know what happens when you have the teacher leading longer meditations? Then what happens is there are longer moments of silence in the meditation class. And I don't know about you, but if I'm taking a meditation class, I like when the teacher's talking. I'm like, oh, wonderful. I can sit here. You're saying this, you're saying that. Wonderful. So, you know, and then, uh, then when there's silence, one minute suddenly feels very long. Oh, they've stopped talking. Oh, I wonder how long it's been. Oh, 30 seconds. Uh, oh, I better close my eyes again. And you close your eyes again. You're like, mm, still not talking. Oh, probably been 10 minutes. You look, oh, one minute. Oh, how long is this going to go on for? You know, so this is the only thing with the, you start doing longer meditations than then it begins to be, oh, I am sitting. Like I'm actually doing the sitting. So this is can be, this just can be quite intense. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that on though. That's, that's quite good. So let's see. Um, let's go for one more question. I think I saw some different questions. Okay, Kathleen has another question. Thanks for asking, Kathleen. Uh, Kathleen says, how does the chemistry or predisposition of our neurology play into this theory of mind? Beyond likes and dislikes, can you speak to the theory of mind in relations to phenomenological effects of outside influences like oppression, hatred, poverty, hunger, and other circumstances like that? Okay, so now we get into more theory, which is interesting. And um, so the cognizing, remember the uh, the cognizing part of the mind is vijnana, which I don't have the little, uh, just type that in there. And it's, you know, V-I-N-N with a little squiggly on top of it, A, and that's in the poly language. So how does that relate to different circumstances that you might experience? So when we think about this, this is, uh, this is different. What we experience is the result of numerous different factors. Our life experience is not always the result only of what's happening within our mind. We are, we are of course, we have the access point to be able to change and interact with our Veda and our body sensations and change how we react to various circumstances. But not everything we experience is, you could say, our fault. You know, this is this kind of new age guilt or the spiritual guilt that comes up with, I stubbed my toe, so therefore I attracted that stubbed toe to myself. Therefore, I have bad karma. And this is like this downward spiral of new age guilt, which is not about that, right? So we're going to think about this. This is, this is what I can talk about according to traditional theory. So they say the Buddha, for example, says that, that everything you experience is a result of four different factors. One, your past sankaras, right? Your habit pattern of the mind rooted in the past. Number two, your current sankaras, which are what's currently happening, all right? Number three, I don't know if we're going to like this number three, so please be mad at the Buddha, not mad at me if you don't like this one. Number three, what types of food or substances you are consuming in your body, what things you're putting into your body, right? So it's also food, but it's also if you're rubbing creams on your body or something like that, so what, what, what things, what inputs you're putting into your body. Then number three, number four, and this is where I think it's relevant to these phenomenological effects that Kathleen was asking about outside influences. 
which is number four is outside influences. The environment around you, whether hospitable or inhospitable, whether uh, there's a hurricane or whether there's a sunny day, whether there's a tornado or whether it's just a, a, a thunderstorm, whether there is a hospitable environment where people are supportive of one another or whether there's a prejudiced environment uh, that you know privileges people in positions of power. So this is a, the environment around us. And we are, our life experience is the subject to those four different phenomena. And our access point to effecting change, according to traditional yoga philosophy and traditional, uh, the, the wisdom traditions of the East, is that you can spend a whole lifetime trying to impact change out there. But if you do not impact change within that theory of mind within yourself, then you will only be generating more misery. You'll be spreading misery. So until you become clear within yourself, then that access point of being able to impact change in the world will always be colored by your own sankharas. You'll be spreading your sankharas rather than spreading metta. And to act with metta is very, very, very challenging. I'll tell you uh, 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 the answer of a question that um, was, that I, I heard one of the, I practiced meditation in the style of SN Goenka. And Goenka was asked the question, Oh, if I'm a meditator and I'm just observing body sensations all the time, when I walk by somebody who is experiencing injustice in the world, then what? I just feel my body sensations and keep walking? No, I, I, I can't do that. Then what? What's the purpose of meditation? What should I do then? Then this isn't, he says, no, you've misunderstood what this is about. No, no, not like that. So what he recommends is this is the difference between someone that is meditating versus someone that is not meditating. So we have uh, say you're walking down the street and you're a non-meditator and you see somebody abusing someone and then you step in and you take the side of, you know, the one who has been abused and you push the aggressor away. And then you and the victim, you commiserate and talk about how bad the abuser was. And yes, you've done a good act, but there's separation. You've created hatred towards this aggressor. So you leave with the feeling, yes, I'm good, but this person is bad. So there's a sense of division, a sense of separation. So this is Goenka saying, now what is the difference between someone on the spiritual path? They walk by, they recognize this situation is happening and they act to stop this abuse from happening with the clear difference that the meditator leaves not only with compassion for the victim, but even more compassion for the aggressor because they know that to commit that act of aggression, that that person has to have so much anger, so much negativity within themselves that they are so much of suffering. So instead of, so they've done, they've affected positive change and separated the aggressor from the victim, but left without the residue. And that's a very difficult thing. I'll tell you that's extremely difficult. You know, it's so easy to hate the perpetrators of the world. It's so easy to hate. You know, you see somebody and they did, and so easy to point out what everyone is doing wrong. Well, you abuse this person or you abuse that person. You did this wrong. They did this wrong. This company is doing this wrong. This whole group of people is harming this other whole group of people. Oh, they're, it's so easy to hate. It's so easy to hate. So it takes so much effort to point out this is wrong and I don't hate you. This is wrong. I don't hate you. In fact, I have compassion for you because you've committed an act of harm. So hard to generate compassion for the aggressors of the world. So hard, very, very difficult. It's why we need lots of practice. So easy to hate the aggressors of the world. So easy. Everyone we identify as a potential source of wrongdoing, so easy to hate them. So, so hard to take intelligent action against the act of wrongdoing without generating more hate. That's why we need lots of practice. Lots of practice. Lots of practice. And you know, it's these, it's these stories of the um, saints of the world, you know, like Gandhi, who've been able to be so effective in the face of oppression and hatred, and at the same time, not generate more hatred and ill will that we, you know, look up to as effective agents of social change in the world that are uh, carrying the torch of the spiritual path. Something for us all to aspire to. And I think on that note, we can all agree that we've got to keep practicing, keep practicing, keep practicing. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Inspiration Show. 
It's always a pleasure to share the inner space of the yoga journey with you. Remember, you can always find me online at omstars.com, www.omstars.com, and on my YouTube channel and all social media at Kino Yoga. I look forward to seeing you on the mat, and more than anything, I hope you take the inspiration to practice yoga and make your world a better place. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.